Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hey, this is Vince You're rocking with Talking Metal. Fucking it. Hey, this is John Five from Rob Zombie, and you're listening to Talking Metal. Yes, Jim Brewer, and you're listening to Talking Metal. Hi, this is Ozzy Osbourne, and you're listening to Talking Metal. <laughs> this Sunday at 11.30, the Independent Film Channel presents Z-Rock, a new comedy series about three guys... The girls love it. ...who are in a rock band by night... ...and a kids' band by day. <laughs> Z-Rock, based on a kind of true story, with special guests Sebastian Bach, John Popper, Gilbert Godfrey, Dee Snyder, Dave Navarro... Who here has banged Carmen Electra? ...and Joan Rivers. I'm very excited. You can't tell because I had the Botox this morning. Z-Rock premieres this Sunday at 11.30, only on IFC, the independent film channel. Rock, rock over London. Zurich. Auckland. Dublin. Dallas. Milwaukee. Los Angeles. Sydney. Indianapolis. Tokyo. Seattle. Paris. Budapest. Berlin. New York. Ladies and gentlemen... Two men who are committed to rocking you wherever you might be. John Astronomy and Mark Striegel. Welcome to the Talking Metal Podcast. Broadcasting around the world from TalkingMetal.com and StriegelsMusicNews.com. Hey, welcome to another edition of Talking Metal. Keep in touch with us by sending us emails at TalkingMetal at Yahoo.com. Leave us a review on our iTunes page. We'd love to hear what you guys think of the show. And uh, that's about it, man. How you doing, John? I'm doing really well, thanks to the fact that I am not currently in Jersey City. No offense to Jersey City, but it's really nice to get out. I am now in Union, New Jersey, which is not too far away from Maplewood, where you live. That's true. That's true. Hey, let's get into a little music and come back and talk about uh, today's episode. This is Small Arms Fire by the great Steve Stevens, an amazing guitar player. Check this out.
That was Small Arms Fire by Steve Stevens, the great guitarist. He played with Billy Idol, he's played with Vince Neil, he's played with Michael Jackson, Atomic Playboys. And make sure to use the links in our show notes and go out and purchase this song. Purchase all of Steve Stevens' stuff. We have an amazing episode for you guys. We have the great Bill O'Coin. I'm sure you guys all know that he is the mastermind behind my favorite group, KISS. He is a superstar manager known throughout the world for not only handling KISS, but he worked with Billy Squire, launched Billy Idol's career into the mainstream, which he's going to talk all about that. And he is currently working with Fixer, too, who are great friends of Talking Metal and Talking Rock. If you want to check out an interview with Fixer, go to the Talking Rock podcast. We have them up on Talking Rock. And Bill is also handling Lordy, a band that we've played uh, music from on Talking Metal. We caught them at OzFest. So true rock and roll heavy metal manager bill acoin and let me tell you this guy can talk and that's a good thing because he's got some great stories absolutely and one of the coolest things is that bill always thought of himself as not only a band manager but also a director and that's why you'll see on a lot of uh, old kiss stuff it'll say management and direction bill acoin for acoin management and he's got a great new company out acoin globe and we are psyched that he's back and working with some great bands cool this is a must listen for any billy idol fan for any kiss fan if you're into hard rock and heavy metal this is definitely also an interview for you because he discusses lordy a great new metal band out of finland they're not actually that new anymore they've been around a few years but having said that maybe get into a little lordy music We'll hear the interview with Bill, which is quite lengthy, and then we maybe can end with some Fixer. That sounds great. So right now, without any further ado, let's get into Who's Your Daddy by Lordy, followed by the interview with the great Bill O'Coin. And ending with Tell No One by Fixer. Use the links in today's show notes to purchase all your music on iTunes. We appreciate it when you use those links. It helps us out. And, guys, thanks for all your support. We'll be back soon. I'll probably be, uh, speaking of daddies, I'll probably be a daddy on the next uh, the next podcast that you hear. Or one podcast coming up real soon. My wife's about ready to pop here. Who's Your Daddy by Lordy. Check it out.
Hey, it's John Astronomy. I'm here with Mark Striegel, and we are with one of the most legendary music managers, TV moguls in the world. I've known about this guy since I was in second grade, Mr. Bill Acoin. How are you, Bill? How are you? I'm doing great. What a great office you've got here. It is fun. But I'm waiting for the hard questions. Well, this isn't too hard. I, I hope it's not too hard. But uh, we want to get into a, a lot of your history, which is just amazing and, and, and I'm sure very interesting. But first, let's talk about Modern Times, a great band which John and I have been uh, fans of for a while, Fixer has recently announced that you are managing them. How did you hook up with these guys? Uh, well, I've known Evan for years, and uh, I kind of uh, uh, was kind of a mentor and also someone who who tell him the bad news, I think, for years. You know, it's kind of hard. I mean, when you see someone as talented as he is, you really want to help. And, of course, part of helping is also telling an artist when it's not quite up to par or when you, if you think it needs changes or things that could help them succeed. And uh, I, I think from Evan's point of view, unfortunately, he heard a lot of that from me for years. And finally... Uh, the band finally settled down, and the music really came up, and they and they they had a chance to get their first deal. And I I, I really uh, not only enjoy him that much, and I love the band, but I I really admire Evan uh, tremendously. Not only is he a he's a good singer and and uh, and, and an extremely good artist, but extremely bright and very aware, and works I think twenty four hours a day on his career. And uh, that's to me is is part of the elements that's necessary to become a success today. So when we started talking about management, management finally, and we've done that for years, and I've kind of pushed it off for years. But since we started a new company called O'Coin Globe, um, I really wanted to uh, manage them, and so it's finally happened. Yeah, what an amazing voice on Evan, and uh, definitely a personality, too. We've done interviews with him. Yeah, Evan has been on our Talking Rock radio show, and uh, we had a blast. And The Rev, the drummer, was on as well. Now, Bill, you are known for a lot of your history, of course, Kiss in the 1970s and into the early 80s. Billy Idol, you were his manager when he was exploding. And then in the 90s, you seemed at least to someone like me, to not really be too present in the music industry. What were you up to in that time period? Well, I did a couple of things. I was out raising money for independent filmmakers. My background is started in film and television. But also, to be honest with you, uh, I was really out of my element with hip-hop. You know, None of the A&R guys really wanted to sign rock and roll. I made a couple of small attempts to say, hey, you know, are you interested? I think this band may work if we all get behind it. No, no, rock isn't working. We're not really signing rock and roll acts. And uh, and I, you know, I really didn't, although, although some hip-hop I really like, but for the most part, uh, I was really kind of a fish out of water for that. So it wasn't really until the end of the 90s, early, you know, 2000 and 2001 that I started to feel that rock was really starting to come back. It might have taken a couple more years, but I, you, you could just tell it was time. Plus, there was, a, there was a generation that really grew up with rock and roll, classic rock and roll. So the generation knew about rock and roll. Uh, what was happening was hip-hop, but it was there under, underground. You know, and the other side of this was that metal never really went away. You, know, you two probably know that more than anyone. Uh, and, and that I started to go after again and learn more about it and see what was happening. I also started to get involved just briefly with a band that we eventually signed called Nothing Rhymes with Orange, which is kind of a 
kind of an English-sounding band, but they were from Miami, where I was living. And we brought them over to England, and I hadn't been in England for a couple of years, and I just started to realize again that that music never went away there. You know, they never gave up on any music, and the generation after generation still goes to clubs to hear new music. You know, here a lot of times, if, if, if it's not a well-known band or if it's not someone that's been promoted, no one really cares about seeing them. And, and in Europe, it seems to, that seems to be the opposite, where, where kids just still seem to be excited about new talent, anything they, they run into, or if they go to a club some night to hear someone else, and they hear, they hear a new band, they stay and they listen. So that excited me again. Uh, I also started uh, talking of, to a band called uh, Lordy, which is a band from Finland um, with my partner. Um, and I, I said, you know, this is kind of interesting. And uh, I was uh, told that they were going to be part of Eurovision. And, of course, they then won Eurovision, which is unusual for a monster metal band to, to win Eurovision. And uh, then I found out that their manager, who initially worked with them, was no longer managing them. Apparently, he had gotten ill and so forth. So we went over and actually spent a couple of weeks, uh, also a couple of nights on the tour bus, which I hadn't done for about 20 years. That was exciting. Uh, in any case, uh, uh, by the end of that, they asked us whether we would manage them. And I said, yes. Ironically, Mr. Lordy was the president of the KISS fan club in, in Finland. So we had some ongoing uh, things that were mutual, uh, and that just that developed. We brought them over here. We put them on Ozfest. They toured with uh, uh, with O Negative. They uh, and they're going to come back again in November for their new album. The single was just released a couple of days ago and entered the charts in Finland number one. So so far so good. I've seen performance footage online of Lordy playing in Finland, and it looks like. Times Square on New Year's Eve. They are just huge over there. Well, it is, and, and of course, when they won Eurovision, you know, the last when, when you win Eurovision, the following year they take the whole network show to your town. Um, but the, the year they won Eurovision, two hundred thousand people showed up in the main square in, in uh, Helsinki to see them. And uh, the next year, of course, the whole network television uh, unit came in for the, and, and they were the hosts of the show. And what happens is, is that we, we went and shot a movie, a film opening, and then it, it, that film opening went into a live performance of Lordy. And for those first five minutes of, of Eurovision uh, that year, 130 million people saw them. So, so they're very well known outside of North America, or at least the United States, because uh, Eurovision doesn't, doesn't play here. Bite It Like a Bulldog is the number one single right now in Finland by Lordy. And this is a band that John and I got into, and we loved the big hooks that they had. And we uh, we saw them on OzFest in 90-degree weather, probably sweating their their asses off in the, in, the, in the costumes. And it was just later that we found out that you were involved with them. And it kind of made sense because, in a way, they kind of brought back the big – rock vibe of the 70s in a contemporary way is that something that attracted you to them yes yeah obviously you know one of the reasons why we developed such a big kiss show back in the 70s was 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 one because they wanted to but two because i came out of television and film as a director producer and i didn't see myself sitting behind a desk being a manager and uh, if you look at any of the records that say oh coin management in those days it'll say direction management and uh, oh coin management so from that point of view i wanted to direct something i wanted to continue my 
in my field of direction. And so every time we came up with a new idea for the show, uh, the great part about Kiss was that they really went along with it. You know, some artists you say, "Let's try this," and oh, you know, they 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 look at you like you've had three heads, and 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 they and it just doesn't happen. But in Kiss's case, uh, the great thing about those four guys were that they they were willing to try anything and anything to make it happen. And their dream, and I can tell you one story when when they were making like maybe twenty five dollars a performance, if that. They would save up their money, and, and, and for a performance that they really wanted to feel good about, they would hire, they'd put the money into a limousine so they could drive to this club or, or this bar to play in a limousine, and they would, they would think in their own minds that it would be like going to Madison Square Gardens, you know? And, that, and that, that's really very special, you know? And some people might say, well, why would they do that? But, you know, when you have that in your mind's eye from the very beginning, and, and I've always told artists, I say, you better see that success in your mind's eye because there'll be plenty of hills and valleys in between. And as long as you keep, as long as your mind's eye keeps pointing in the direction you feel you want to go and where you want to get to, uh, you know, you have a real good shot. I was going to ask what initially attracted you to KISS, and I think that that has got to be the answer. The fact that they always were looking ahead to success and they were also willing to try anything. Everything from breathing fire to just all of the other show ideas that, that you guys came up with. There's lots of there's lots of good stories. I mean, it wasn't all uh, quite as simple, but almost. It's, uh, you know, I had, I had a fire breather come into my office and uh, he set up his little can of kerosene or whatever it was. Or, and uh, and he blue flames he darkened one of my walls actually and and the four guys were sitting there and their eyes were wide as can be and and i turned to them and i said well who wants to try it and no one did no one said they i don't think they could believe that i was even thinking of it and then finally gene kind of raised his hand and, and that's really why it went to gene uh, I'll, I'll tell you one other story as well gene is always like that you know if he, he thinks it can work and he can be out there he's going to do it i had uh develop something really for Paul Stanley because Gene was getting so much attention with the fire and the spinning of the blood that I wanted Paul to fly to the top of the lighting grid to sing a song and I'm, I'm describing this and Paul said Gene oh, I don't know if I really want to fly of course the minute he said that Gene said oh I'll do it you know and that's again that's wow. why Gene flew and uh, I mean my main concern in many areas I mean all that was fun and, and creating that and making it work you know, like how we we were involved with the first uh, radio guitars and and uh, and some of the first uh, air guns for confetti and for you know all that other stuff that no one had ever done before. So and and lasers as well, which didn't work out but the initial when we first tried it, but but all of that we went through and uh, and doing those shows, especially with with a group that would do it. You know, uh, although Gene went to those kind of spectacular things. Uh, you know, Paul would do the spectacular jumps and everything else that would be unbelievable. And, and Ace, of course, we had all the electric guitars with all the lights and everything else, and right, so he could shoot them. You know, and, and, and Peter would go up on the drum riser. And uh, so everyone really had their thing, but yeah, everyone went along with it, and of course it worked. It was great. Literally, bands today really take cues still from the stuff that you guys did because all of that stuff I don't think had ever been seen before. And I think you guys were the true innovators of a major, big rock show like that. And I mean, even the 80s metal bands, all that was just on the coattails of, of what you guys were doing in the 70s. It's very it's interesting seeing all the things that we really developed way back then, and we see them almost in every show now. You know, the fire pods. How many, how many times have you right. seen those fire pods go out with everyone? And we're the ones that developed it. 
back then. So, yeah, it's kind of hard. You know, uh, there's a lot of new things that are happening, uh, not only in 3D and the screens and, and walls that can be that can conform to all sorts of things, which will be exciting in the future. But, but uh, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, what we went through and what we – and, again, it was all because everyone was able to say, yeah, let's try it. Whatever it is, if we can do it, we'll do it. And, and I find that, again, you may not think this, but there are a lot of artists who are afraid to take chances. They really are stuck in their own world. And I always say, listen, uh, and again, something else I told Kiss and other artists, look, we're going to fail at some things. And as long as we win more than we fail, we're going to be fine. And with Kiss, we were very lucky. I would say we won most of, about 80% of the time. But even if we had won 51% of the time, we would have been ahead of the game. And those, those other 20% that we really failed or that just fell apart or didn't work, no one even remembers. Now, had you stopped managing Kiss when you started up with Billy Idol? Uh, no, no. Uh, we have actually, uh, the beginning of, it, it's very interesting uh, from my perspective, uh, when a band starts having problems, you know, remember uh, uh, when Peter Chris left the band and, uh, and I kind of made a, a, a contract for him leaving the band. And then Ace, there was a question about Ace. Uh, you know, it's almost like seeing the love of your life or your children kind of falling apart. Uh, so that bothered me. Uh, and then uh, Gene and Paul really wanted to take off their makeup. And I understood why they wanted to. Um, because obviously everyone else that was having success was known, and they could go out and they weren't known, and they weren't getting that, that kind of feeling where people would come up to them. And so I understood why they wanted to do it. On the other hand, I had spent almost 10 years protecting the KISS logo and the KISS faces, and, and it was the first time that any rock band had ever had their faces copywritten in the Library of Congress. I mean, it took years to do that. Plus the merchandise was a big part of what they were doing and, and, and also a big part of the money that was coming in every year for them and, and for all of us. Uh, so when they started to talk about that, on top of the fact that Peter had left and that Ace maybe was leaving, uh, it was a little depressing for me. It was a little kind of like, you know, how, how am I going to keep my energy up if all of this is happening? It's not really the kiss that I began with. It's changing. Uh, am I going to feel good about it or not? And uh, Gene and Paul came into my office one day and said, well, you know, it's not quite the same. And, uh, and we kind of sat there, all of us kind of going, oh, my goodness, we knew what was going to happen. We discussed it, and we said we're going to split. And that's, that's how it happened. Uh, we're actually closer now, I think, than, than even then, because then it was more like a manager and artist. And now it's really just friends, and they're really, really close friends. But, uh, but that was that. Uh, at the same time, I had gone to see uh, this band called Generation X in the middle of the winter, uh, playing on the Isle of Wight uh, in the middle of the winter, which is not a fun place to be. And uh, and the reason is that the is the uh, one of the owners of Chrysalis had said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna let uh, Generation X go, but we get this kid, this front kid, called Billy Idol, that uh, he's really talented, but we have no idea what we're gonna do with him. But we thought maybe you could think of something or work with him or whatever and uh, so I went to the Isle of Wight in the middle of the winter I saw him and I said oh yeah he's a star and I went back to the company and I said yeah I, I think we've got something here uh, let me talk let me come back to England when Billy gets off tour and talk to him so I did and I said uh, I said you know would you consider coming to the States and Billy said no no I'm, I'm going to do another Generation X album now I already knew that they weren't they were going to let Generation X go so I didn't want to 
disappoint Billy, but I said, okay, well, if, you, if, if the next Generation X album doesn't work, would you come to the States? He said, yes. So I went back to Chrysalis, and I said, we're going to do another Generation X album. <laughs> they looked at me cross-eyed. They said, no, you don't understand, Bill. We're going to release Generation X. I said, no, no, you're not. You're actually going to do another Generation X album, and I'm going to use it to put a team together for Billy. And so we did it, and uh, songs like Dancing With Myself came out of it and a few others. And, uh, and I put uh, Keith Forsey. I brought Keith Forsey in. Keith was, was the drummer and assistant to Giorgio Moroda on, on Donna Summer's albums. And Giorgio kept telling me, you know, I've got this young guy who's just so super talented. I really think he's going to be a great producer. And so I sent Keith three tapes. I forgot who the other two artists were, and I said, pick one. And you'll have a chance to produce. And he picked Billy, wow. which is the one I wanted him to pick, but I wasn't <laughs> sure. Anyway, so I brought him to England. He did the Generation XL. We kind of put, started putting the team together. And, of course, I knew that Chrysalis wasn't going to promote it. Uh, so that kind of died. And, and I, then I brought Billy to the States and signed him to Chrysalis Inc. over here from Chrysalis Limited in England. And uh, they hated me, actually. They, they thought it was over. Uh, and uh, they said, well, I, I, you know, just because you know the owners of the company doesn't mean that we have to deal with this artist. They, he, he, it was over. And, and they were releasing Gen X, and, you know, punk music didn't work in the States, and now we have to deal with it. Ooh, wow, that wasn't a great awakening. So they wouldn't even let me do a new album. They, we made a compromise. We'll just do an EP. And that EP, ironically, had Money Money on it, the first song oh. we recorded. And... Um, and after we did the EP, and if you remember that the the picture of Billy with the spiked hair and everything up and everything, I got a call from from the head of promotion at Chrysalis in L.A. and he said, "Are you going to be in L.A.?" and I said, "Well, if we're going to talk about the release, I'll come to L.A." And so I went to L.A. and and he said, uh, "Bill, I, I'm going to be very honest with you because I know you know the owners of the company, but I'm not going to promote this album." And I have a very dry sense of humor, so I'm thinking, this guy, we'll get along fine. He's got a yeah, good dry sense of humor. And then I realized it wasn't a sense of humor. He was serious. <laughs> and I'm sitting there in shock, and he, um, he said, look, you know, this is not the right image for Chrysalis. You know, we have really significant artists, and, uh, and I, I can't put this out with this kid with the spiked hair and stuff, this punk rocker. This is just not good for Chrysalis. I don't want to ruin Chrysalis's reputation at radio. So I'm sitting there going, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Now, in those days, I knew that any significant single would have significant money behind it because, you know, obviously. And, and, and that in those days, okay, that was like in the beginning of the 80s. If a company was really behind a single, you probably a promotional budget would be about a quarter of a million dollars, about 250000 And um, so I said, okay, well, I want the promotional budget. And, and uh, he said, oh, no, 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 I, I, this can't go to radio. I, and I said, I will not spend a penny on radio. So he kind of had to give in a bit of stuff. So basically I walked out saying, oh, what are we going to do? And uh, we came up with an idea I thought that, was, that actually worked, but we didn't know it at the time, which was to bring in certain DJs at some of the big clubs around the country and say, listen, come on to New York. We're going to wine and dine you. You're going to do your own mix of dancing with myself, and uh, and you'll go back and have it with you, and so forth. So everyone said yes, of course. 
you know, and uh, they went into the studio and mixed it with Billy and and you know Keith and everything. And of course, they left with our mix. They didn't know that, but but they but they went back. They went back and they played it day and night. I mean, every night they were playing. They it play, yeah, mix. right, That's right. Great. And uh, so uh, about a, two weeks later, I get a call from the head of promotion. I don't know how you did this. I, I you know, I, I don't understand how this happened. But we're getting calls from radio stations why we haven't serviced the Billy Idol song. So it worked in reverse, where radio started calling Chrysalis wow. and saying, how come you haven't serviced us this? Everyone wants to hear it. So, I mean, uh, so, you know, I mean, you never know what's going to happen. You know, with, with Kiss, you know, no one liked Kiss. Uh, you know, no makeup band was ever going to make it. Radio thought for sure it was a loser. Um, you know, most magazines didn't. In fact, I have to tell you, Jan Winter at, at Rolling Stone made a decree that no one should ever put Kiss in Rolling Stone, period. And as of today... He still won't do it. In fact, he's on the Grammy board, and I uh, always votes against anything that Kiss, uh, the, the Rock of Fame, rather. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll right. Hall of Fame, and always votes against Kiss. I, I think yeah. I read an article where he said, as long as he's on that yeah, board, he will never even let them get yeah. to be nominated. Correct. Yeah. And so, I mean, it'll eventually happen, but yeah. And uh, so it was, you know, it gone through a lot of strange things, you know. One of the first concerts that I ever saw in my hometown. Uh, which is called Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which I know Kiss has played back in the Absolutely. Destroyer tour. Um, was Billy Idol when Rebel Yell was happening? I remember I had the shirt, and uh, so that was one of my earliest concerts. Yeah. Ironically, how, how strange is it that uh, Billy Idol graced the cover of a Rolling Stone in a jockstrap, a leather jockstrap, which was then banned in many towns. <laughs> it was famous. We were famous for doing things that are slightly off center. And uh, but you know, it, Billy Billy's great. Billy's a great performer. You know, he gives everything for his performance. But I must tell you that when he came over here, he um, I asked him. I asked him. You know, well, what are you going to need to live every week? You know, he gave me a. A figure that you would have laughed at, it would have been practically nothing, right? And 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 I remember going to see where he was living. He's lying. He was had a had the mattress on the floor of an apartment that had more roaches than there were people. And but he was happy. He was going out every night. It was New York, <laughs> and you know uh, when we when I finally got out of the business about eighty at the end of eighty seven eighty eight, I um I told Billy I said you know the one thing I don't think you should ever do. He didn't pay attention to this, but I said I don't think you should ever leave New York. I think if you go to L.A., they're going to eat you up and spit you out because, you know, L.A. happens to be, you know, what's new and when, you know, and, and next, you know. And here's Billy Idol with a hit uh, album, with a new album coming out, good-looking guy, you know, has all the attributes for Hollywood. And I think in many ways it hurt him. I mean, that's my own opinion because I think it took that real street sense that he always had, and it, which continued in New York City that you really don't have in L.A. But you know, that's those are those. That's what's happened, and it's kind of uh, it's kind of sad. I talk to him every once in a while, but not as close as Gene and Paul. And when did Steve Stevens come into the mix, and where did you guys find him? Steve was interesting. Steve was involved with a little pop band here in New York. And uh, I went to see him a few times, and uh, I wasn't sure of the band, but I was damn sure of Steve Stevens. And so eventually, we just signed Steve, and um, not knowing what we were going to do with Steve, to be honest with you. And when Billy Idol came over, we had to put a band together for him. And I said, well, I'd like Steve Stevens to be in your band. Well, I don't know. He's, I don't know. Is he a real good guitarist? Yes, he's a good guitarist. Um, 
Uh, well, let's see. So we start playing. Billy would come back. And say, I don't. I don't think Steve Stevens. So what do you mean you don't think Steve Stevens? This is really. He's got unique ideas and everything. Man, well, plays too much. He's not real rock and roll. He plays too much. And and of course, it all worked eventually. I, I'll tell you one story about being at the at the uh, at a studio, Electric Lady, actually, and we're doing doing the album. And uh, Steve has by that time he's got his first guitar. Kramer. It's a Steve Stevens guitar, and it's multicolored, and he is just beaming. He is beaming. And uh, we're there, and he's oh, look at it. Oh, isn't this great, Bill? And wow, that's incredible. And Billy walks in, and he sees this shiny new multicolored guitar, and he takes his keys out and scratches oh, it. No. Right, yeah. <laughs> and Steve is almost in tears now. You can see the tears coming to his eyes, and he turns up, Why'd you do that? And Billy says, rock and roll isn't pretty. <laughs> and he just walked into the control room. And I said, oh, my God. But that was Billy. Billy was very real. Whatever was on his mind, it came out, and that's it. And that was great about him. And I, you know, I, and I think that uh, it helped a lot. But I really do think that Billy got a lot of his energy and, and his ability to come up with ideas for songs from the street and from people he hung out with and, 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 and dealt with their problems as well as his problems and, uh, you know, anything that happened. And I, that was the magic. That was really a magic. And, and, and when he didn't, I'll give you an example. A lot of times, because of his energy, he would get three-quarters of the way through something or 80% through, and that would be it. I, I, I don't know. I'm, it's not going to happen. I, I don't know. Well, based with Steve and Keith, the rest of the team would kind of fill in, and, uh, and which would make it work, and probably more, more powerful than most people would know. There was one story. We're out at Westlake in, in L.A., and I'm listening to tracks, and Keith says, uh, oh, we got this song called White Wedding. This was before Reveille Young. White Wedding, and uh, yeah, I think uh, I didn't play it for you because I think it's not going to go on the album. I said, well, I want to hear it. So we played it. So you see, it doesn't quite hold together, and I'm thinking to myself, this is just incredible. And, and so they're ready. To, Billy doesn't want to work at it anymore. Keith is frustrated. He doesn't want to work at it anymore, so... So I finally, at the, on the way out of the studio, I said, Keith, uh, everything's great. I really like it. You will do White Wedding. And he said, oh, Bill, no. I, I said, I don't care what you have to do. You bring in anyone from anywhere, I don't care. You're going to do White Wedding. And um, he brought in a keyboard player from uh, Germany that, that, uh, that Giorgio Moroda had used on, on uh, Donna Summer. And that was the key. The guy came up with a line and this and that. It all kind of fell together, yeah. Speaking of Steve Stevens and also speaking of the fact that when you work with new artists like Evan from Fixture, you, you tell them the truth and you tell them when they're good and when they're yeah. bad. And I think that's very important. And I've got a great story that you may or may not even remember. I went out to see Van Halen with huh. Jeanette Fraley and uh-huh. Lydia Chris once. Yeah. And Steve Stevens uh, was with um, Vince Neil at the time. And Vince came off stage, and, you know, I think Vince Neil is great. But everybody, you know, of course, will go up to people and say, oh, you're so good. I love you. And you, when you were speaking to him, I overheard, and you said, you know, Vince, you were not on tonight, and you really need to work on this. And I just thought it's great that uh, although you weren't managing him, you gave him some constructive criticism. Yeah, I mean, I, they always kind of remember that. I, uh, I did that to a number of artists that, uh, uh, that remember it every once in a while. Uh, you know, when I managed uh, Billy Squire, Billy... I'll tell you a story about that. Billy, uh, when we, I, I managed, uh, signed him when he was in Boston and brought him to New York. And uh, he uh, didn't want to be Billy Squire. He said, no, I need a band. I really need a band, Bill. And I said, well, okay, we'll put a band. Now, the band was Piper. Piper, right. 
Yeah, and uh, the truth of the matter is Billy is just super talented and has and and bright and he, he knows really what he wants to do. And I think he was a little uncomfortable doing putting himself out there first, so that's how Piper happened. When when Piper didn't really break, I told Billy, I said I said I think you're too strong. I think you ha- it has to be Billy Squire. You're never going to be happy under another name and with other people having as much power as you have in your group. And uh, and that's what happened. It took a while, but he finally did. And, of course, it was a success. But, yeah, there are certain, certain things you see in artists that you absolutely know why they have to change or why it has to, to go on. Uh, the, the one thing that, uh, that always gets thrown at me, of course, was that I didn't sign Van Halen. And I, and I have to tell you, t- today, if I see Eddie, Eddie will turn around and won't look at me and walk away. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's the only one, but he, yeah, even to today. And it was very strange. I learned a big lesson. Um, when when Gene came and said to this group, I said, yeah, I heard of them. I, I heard their name in L.A. when I was in L.A. and so forth. And I said, okay, we'll fly him to New York. Big mistake. You should never, as a manager, you should never, you should never let an artist come to where you're at. You should always go to where the artist at and see with their fans and their interaction, where they're most comfortable. So I brought him to New York, put him in SIR. And they were nervous, um, and uh, Dave, Dave didn't really sing that well. You know, Dave never had a great voice, but he was a great rock and roller, you know, and it all worked together. And even Eddie was, you know, he's supposed to be a phenomenal guitarist. Well, I don't know, okay, you know. And I like his guitar playing, but how about the whole thing? So I said, no, well, of course. That came to haunt me over and over and over, and to the point where, as I said, Eddie won't talk to me t- till today. Uh, anyway, so years later, I'm at Warner Brothers, and Ted Templeman and I go out for lunch, and we're talking about everything, and I'm saying, boy, I have to tell you, Ted, I paid dearly for not signing Van Halen, I mean, in many ways. And uh, he said, uh, I didn't want to sign Van Halen. I said, what do you mean? He said, I just wanted to sign Eddie. But the band wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't go without Dave. And I said, I didn't want Dave to sing. He didn't have a voice. And I'm saying, oh, my God. <clears throat> and so it, after he told me the whole story, it was almost what I had thought, but they, they, he wanted to sign him, and because he wanted Eddie so bad, he signed the whole band. And then, as you know, he did the first few singles himself. He's the one who brought the songs in and actually did them. So they were very lucky to have a great producer and have Warner Brothers behind him because not only is Ted Talman a great producer, but he was a, he is a key component at Warner. So whatever Ted wanted to do, the whole company did. So they had the best of all worlds. But I didn't get to manage them, so there. <laughs> One of the greatest rock records of all time, Quadrophenia by The Who, uh, is, from what you told me before the interview started, is going to be coming to the stage. Can you tell us about yeah. this and your involvement with it? Yeah, well, um, I have a uh, actually a gentleman from the West Coast. His name is Bill Schultz, who actually is in the medical field. But he, uh, he was from Minneapolis, and he went to the West Coast because he always wanted to be a screenwriter. And, of course, he couldn't get a job. And uh, he had worked for 3M in, in uh, Minneapolis. So he went to 3M out there saying, I really need a job. And so they gave him a job. And he got to know the medical field. They made all sorts of apparatus, you know, for replacement of, of shoulders and elbows and hips and everything else. And he finally left that his own company and became a multimillionaire, very successful. And one day, a friend of mine said, you know, maybe you should meet this Bill Schultz. He really wants to do something. The Who is his favorite band. And he, so I went out to meet him, 
And he said, you know, I always thought Quadrophenia would be a great show, and I'd really want to put it on. And I said, well, you know, it's not that easy, but let's discuss it. And so I became his associate producer on the project, and we actually put it on about eight, nine times uh, out on the West Coast in, in uh, L.A. and in Orange County. And then we had to get to Pete Townsend. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Pete said, no, don't want to do it, don't want to do it. Uh, well, you know, and basically said, stop, that's it, I don't want you to do it anymore, and so forth. So we kind of went through that whole thing. And then after a period of time, Pete came back, because he had heard so many good things about the show. He said, well, maybe we'll do it. And that, then that took months and months and months and months, and it finally just came to fruition a couple of weeks ago. And it's going to open, uh, Quadrophenia is going to open outside of London on uh, May 15th, you know, 5-15, the song in the, in the and uh, next year. Uh, and we're going to bring it all through Europe. Uh, and then Pete has pretty much said that if it all works, goes together, we'll bring it to the States and go around the world with it, and then maybe even bring it to Broadway. So there's a lot of steps in between, but it actually is, it's in the works now, and it'll open uh, in May of '09. You know, Bill, it just seems like every project you get involved in, there's some great story around it, and then it goes, you know, super big. Now, are there any bands that you really believed in that didn't really take off? Uh, uh, well, there are, there are things that happened. There's a, there was a band, uh, you know, when you have a company, you have other executives in it, and, and they have ideas about what they'd like to sign. Uh, New England was a band that uh, yeah, that my uh, head of promotion said, hey, I think we should look at them. And, uh, and then Ron Luxemburg, who was starting a new label, Infinity with Universal, uh, with tons of money by, behind him, and said, I want to sign them. Chrysalis also wanted to sign them, by the way. And, um, and I said, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll do it. And they had a couple songs I thought were very good. Uh, this, is a good this is a good lesson to learn. The band wasn't getting along with each other when we signed them, but they had made a pact never to let me know. So it was strained from the beginning, and yet they had this deal, and they had this great deal, and everything else, and Quinn Management was managing them and everything. Uh, when, when Infinity, everything fell apart at once. The band wasn't getting along, it finally started showing. Infinity was having problems, Ron was having problems with the amount of money he spent from Universal, and they were kind of shutting him down. I, it was kind of like a disaster all at once, you know, it just imploded. So that was one. Uh, and then there was a band that, that, that I really loved from, uh, from uh, San Antonio called Toby Bow. Just an incredible band, a country rock band. Uh, and uh, we signed them to RCA, and RCA thought, boy, this could be a huge band for us. Brought them to Europe, did everything else. We got through the uh, first album. We're going to the second album and stuff. And uh, uh, the lead, the lead writer in the group, which was the guitarist, who wrote the songs, really very good, says, "I am. Um, I really don't like this, and I don't like touring, and I really don't you know, think this is it. I'm going to go back to San Antonio." So he goes back to San Antonio and literally gets a job working at a record store. And, again, it was kind of like, whoa, uh, yeah, hello, what, what hello. Uh, there's the guts of the group gone, you know. Uh, and uh, it was one of those crazy moments. And uh, at the same time, this was happening at the same time when Kiss was kind of uh, going through, are we going to stay together? Aren't we gonna, what's going to happen? Is Ace leaving? If not, Peter's to this and that. Gene and Paul are unhappy. Da, 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 da. I said, oh, boy. So 
Uh, I have to say that with all the turmoil going on at the time, I didn't really try to save it, especially with a key key guy in the group gone. You know, try to then you're into finding songs, and and if you don't have this, and if you don't have that, but they were a phenomenal group, and I thought they could have been a major, major success. That was that was really probably my biggest disappointment. You know, there was what I'll give you one other story. Well, you're getting everything out of me. Yeah, I don't sorry. have to do the book now. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I managed Man of War for a short time, and uh, and was signed to EMI Records, and uh, they're now on on a major tour, and they're opening up, and we're in an arena in I think Houston or Dallas, I forgot which one it was. And the head of A and R from EMI comes out and uh, wants to discuss things and everything. So they play. They come off. We're up in the dressing room, and he's telling him what he thinks has to be done, and the band says. Screw you. We don't have to do that. We're not going to do it. So I'm thinking to myself, well, that's the wrong way to handle this. But I, and I'm trying to calm everyone down. I walk out of the dressing room, and the head of a and says, they're off the label. Wow. <laughs> that clear. Yeah. One meeting, they're off the label. Oh, no. I don't want to see them again. They're off the label. <laughs> I, so I had to walk back into the dressing room. And say, well, guys, I think you might have taken this a bit far. Well, what do you mean, Bill? I, I, we don't have to do that. I said, well, no, you don't have to do that because you're off the label. So that was, you know, you never know. And, you know, life is kind of a, a ride anyway. You know, it's, and it, uh, that was kind of a surprise. So everything, everything went from shooting sky high and having everyone behind them to everything just collapsing. So, yeah. When you were talking about bands like New England who were not getting along with yeah. each other and, you know, when certain members want to leave and it happened to Kiss, what I think was one of the best ideas, and I'm thinking it was probably your idea, that helped Kiss stay together for so long was having them split all of the money. Did you come up with that? Yeah. I forced that at the beginning. I always felt that, that and I still believe today, although, believe me, I haven't been able to to do that with other groups. That, that the only thing that could destroy them was money if, if one person was making so much more money. So I made them split everything equally. Now, in the years to come, when 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 they when Peter left and then Ace, of course, Gene and Paul were never going to do that again. And, of course, they were the real key to the group anyway. But, but nevertheless, um, yeah, and I think it helped. And, of course, when, they, when you start hearing, even, even when they split everything equally, you know, when, when all of them had pretty big money in their pocket, it became like, do we have to do another tour right now? And, uh, and the idea was to do solo albums to kind of get let them get out of their system, each one of them, um, you know, what they wanted to do, whatever their, whatever their hang-ups they thought in their head or their music they really wanted to do, whatever that might be. Let's do the solo albums. And initially we were going to do one solo album at a time, one, one album at a time. And... Uh, <laughs> And I said, well, that's kind of, I'm not sure we can do that, Neil. Neil Bogart is what And I said, you know, one at a time, I, you know, I think maybe we should see if we can do them all at a time. And, and Neil said yes. Probably wasn't the right idea, but nevertheless, he said yes. Uh, so anyway, we're, we're um, about to put him out. And one distributor, I think it was Handelman at the time, called uh, the head of sales, uh, called uh, Casablanca and said, we'll take a million units. <laughs> Well, that just doesn't, didn't happen. Neil went absolutely out of his mind. They were taking a quarter of a million of each of the albums, you know. And Neil just went. I mean, he would, it was like heaven had blessed Casablanca, <laughs> you know. No one orders a million units. And um, 
So he decides, well, if Handelman's soldering a million, let's press up a couple more million because everyone's going to want them. So what happened was, and this is a great, this is the story in the industry that, you know, we, uh, uh, we shipped uh, gold and everything came back platinum, you know. And, uh, and what would happen is there were so many units out there, you'd walk into a record store and Kiss albums were piled four or five feet high from the floor. All Kiss you know, and and even if you, even if you bought twenty of them, it still, still looked like it, that wasn't right. selling. Yeah, wow, and so it was a disaster initially. Now they all went platinum eventually. Yeah, but but you know, it really was. It was the laughing stock of the industry. You know, shipping gold coming back platinum. You know, you can imagine. And so we all had to live through that. But um, but you know, and I think most labels uh, would have really had a rough time. Neil Bogart was very special. He was one of these record music people who knew music. You know, he was a singer himself, had his own single out years before, and he really kind of knew it and felt it, and uh, two things that were great about Neil. One is his word was his bond. There's a lot of things that Neil and I shook hands on that you didn't need a piece of paper for, and uh, there was even one time when Neil and I made a decision to do something, and uh, I went down to talk to his uh, in-house lawyer, about just put send me a memo on it, and he tried to change the deal, and uh, and I got Neil on the phone, and Neil said, "Let me let me talk to him," and he just he just laid into him. He said, "When I give my word, that's it." Period. So that was one thing, and the other thing was that Neil was always thinking about new ideas, and and we'd talk about it no matter what it was, and and if we just thought it was crazy enough or wild enough or that it would make, get noticed, we would do it, and even if it costs money, and that that most people wouldn't. You know, wouldn't do. You know, and there was a time when Warner's event gave Neil his first monies to start Casablanca. Oh, this is another story. Uh, the um, and, but they didn't like Kiss. Uh, like most people in the industry, they thought this was just foolishness. And we went out to play a showcase for Warner's at the uh, uh, at a hotel in in L.A. and. Um, uh, they saw him, and uh, Kiss was nervous, and the sound system was just horrible, and they sounded, they played too loud, and it was just noise, basically. So, I mean, I knew it wasn't good, but it didn't really say anything at that point. And I, uh, uh, and what happened is that one is they, the from the president's office sent a memo, an internal internal memo saying, saying, don't work Kiss. We really believe in Neil Bogart. He's going to come up with some great artist, but just. We're not going to work his. Well, by that time, Neil had schmoozed everyone at Warner's, so someone passed him the memo. He was furious. So he walked into jo- to, uh, to Mo Austin and Joe Smith's office. They were co-presidents of Warner's at the time. He said, how can you do this to me? You're undermining my company before you begin. I, I mean, you know, and uh, I think they talked about, well, maybe they should take off their makeup, maybe this. Neil called and said, well, Warner's doesn't like their makeup. Well, they take off their makeup, and we were... We were we were working on the show at the old Fillmore, the Fillmore East. It had closed down, and we had taken it over. And I said, Neil, it's not going to happen, but I'll ask them because you asked me, and I'll ask them. And I asked the guys, and of course we all said no. And and I called Neil back and said, no, they don't want to take off the makeup. So he went back to Warner's and said no. Basically worked out a deal to leave Warner's. And mortgaged his home to keep Casablanca going. Yeah, all around Kiss. There's so many stories around Kiss you can't imagine. And on the same tip, didn't you once finance a tour on your Amex yeah. card? Yeah. Yeah, well, when Neil left, 
and he mortgaged his home to keep the company going. Basically, there wasn't any money, I mean, just to keep the company going. And he had brought a lot of friends from New York who moved out, had homes and kids and families. So he went, he went to, uh, to pay their salaries and everything. And, and so we came to a tour. We came to a tour, and uh, there was no money. So I put it on my American Express card, and I'll make this quick. The uh, I had never spent more than a hundred bucks, maybe, I and mean, that was a lot uh, to spend on my Amex card uh, for myself. And and the month I did the tour was twenty five thousand. And uh, I remember the call when they called and said, "Mr. O'Coin, do you expect to pay this?" Absolutely. Yeah. I had, and a couple of weeks later, I called and said, "Oh my God, this oh, oh all those problems." Uh, but don't worry, I won't use my Amex card, but I will pay the bill. And believe it or not, they never took the Amex card away from me. Today, they'd be gone like that. And, um, and about a month later, we got our first big check. So we went from being completely broke, I mean, I mean broke, to getting $2 million. So, wow. Yeah. Great story. Yeah. Well, Bill, thank you so much for joining us and some great, great stories. And we'd love to have you back at some point yeah. for... More great stories. Yeah, absolutely. We could just sit here all day, and uh, you've got to write a book. Well, I've been asked a couple of times. I haven't. I, my line to most publishers is, "I have to wait for one more person to die." So, yeah. <laughs> all right. Anyway, thanks, Bill. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Bill, and we will definitely see you soon.